0: to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Mandy Walls. Find me at lnxchk on Twitter. Welcome back for this week's episode of Page to the Limit. Joining me today, I have Mary and Kimberly. We're going to talk about documentation, good stuff like that. Ladies, tell us a bit about yourself. Mary, who are you? What did you do?
1: Uh, my name is Mary Jingaleski, and I am currently the instructional designer and technical writer for Honeycomb.io.
2: Awesome. And Kimberly? I am Kimberly Garmo. I am currently unemployed in the best possible way. I was the manager of the technical documentation at Chef until last Monday. And on April 4th, I will be starting my next job. Excellent. So you will be reemployed by the time this
0: episode comes out.
2: I am unemployed in a non-scary way.
0: You yeah, got fun employment going on. Is... Unemployment
2: time for myself.
0: Excellent. Awesome. So tell us a bit about what you kind of do day to day. Like for folks who maybe aren't sure exactly what kind of things that instructional designer and technical writers and the, what is this job. Mary, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So I'm technically half of a person
1: with my roles. So (laughs) so as an instructional designer, uh, a lot of things that I do involve working on public workshops. Uh, You may know about our Intro to Observability workshops that we have, our Advanced Observability Workshops. Part of my role was to develop the curriculum involved with that. That was definitely a collaborative project with subject experts at Honeycomb. In addition to doing that, my technical writer role focuses on all of the content and information architecture and so on and so forth that you can see at the Honeycomb Docs site, which is docs.honeycomb.io.
0: Cool. We'll put some of those in the In the show notes, as I know, Honeycomb, you run those workshops on a regular basis. We've had some other Honeycomb folks on the show before, so. Correct. Yeah.
1: Usually, I believe the Intro to Observability or Observability 101 uh, runs on a monthly basis. I know 201 will be coming soon. That's all.
0: (laughs) Awesome. We'll we'll post the page and and yeah, if folks want to check that out, uh, that'll be awesome. And Kimberly, since you're between jobs, like what did you used to do and what are you looking forward to doing?
2: In the most last year uh, at Chef, I managed the technical documentation team. And in the four years prior to that, I worked up from starting out as an uh, individual contributor to team lead and then into management. I focus on user-facing documentation for customers and for community, typically in a DOCSIS mode methodology, uh, though not exclusively. And the areas that I really specialize in are classification, taxonomy, and page design. So that content is consistent and discoverable. And also findable through both Google and whatever internal search you're using. So I'm a big old search nerd. Okay. All right. Well, so let's what was the,
0: the, the method you you mentioned? Oh, docs code?
2: Yeah. So the DOCSIS code methodology is easy to think of as DevOps for documentation. It is a way of writing and publishing documentation that is consistent with the values of DevOps. That is, it is you know, iterative, deployable, and repeatable, and uh, you know, s- secure and reliable insofar as possible. And it means that we collaborate with engineering teams. Um, we enable engineers to write. Uh, and uh, we do a lot of writing ourselves. Okay. I hadn't heard about that before. That's awesome.
1: Oh, it's a really great philosophy, especially if you are a, a lone docs writer or mm-hmm. if uh, you're, you're starting out in docs. Uh, it's a great way to make sure that your docs are getting up to steam and also that there's different processes that are streamlined and automated.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So everything you want for your code, you want for the documentation that Describes it. Correct.
1: And ideally, the documentation would be as close to the code as possible. So some techniques with that involve like your documentation is
2: held in the same repository as the code that you are writing. And the tools that you use for writing your your documentation are tools that are developer-friendly and easily accessible for developers. So generally, it's markdown files. Um, If you're using automation, it'll generally be YAML. Sometimes you'll JSON, but that's truly if it's a hands-off experience. Like, nobody has to mess around with it. And you add in, you know, you have automation for testing, code snippets wherever possible, um, and those things then get ingested automatically into your code so that they're always reliable. You'll use um, standards on such things like, as APIs, so your APIs will be documented using the Open API standard, which means that you can test them, push out to the Open API standard that document, and then your API content is published using that document. There are tools for that. Um, and it's a question of, you know, how do you build, how do you test, how do you deploy?
0: Yeah, so similar to what you hope your software engineers are, are going through the same yeah. thought process there. So how how did you get into this? Like Mary, I know your background's kind of interesting. How did you how did you get to, to where you are now? I got to where I was because of Kimberly. <laughs> oh, so we've got a, a, a partner story here. Okay.
1: Yeah, well I was thinking about it, Kimberly, and I think we've met it's either gonna be this fall or next spring. We'll have known each other for a two digit Number of years? Yeah,
2: yeah, let's not say those words out loud. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, I'm going to put an actual number. I'm just going to be like, yeah, it's a visible number. And Kimberly and I uh, met in graduate school when we were getting our masters in library and information studies degrees at University of British Columbia.
0: Okay, so your background is in library science. Is that correct? How does that translate? What does what do you bring from that background? into what you're you're working on now?
1: Oh, there's so much. Like every time someone goes like, oh, Mary, do you know of any technical writers? I'm like, there's a lot of librarians who are looking to get out of libraries that would be great assets for your company. There's a whole bunch. Uh, Anything from project management to content creation, um, especially for aspects with the instructional designer part, Any librarian who has done instruction or instruction, uh, whether it be workshops, tutorials, so on and so forth, there's different specializations within libraries, but a lot of times librarian roles can uh, encompass many skills within one job. I'm holding myself back because I know Kimberly is going to be like, let me break it down with not only that, but taxonomy and information organization and boom boom
0: boom. Well yeah, let's let's talk about the 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 vocabulary words there. Yeah, go for it.
2: So I started out my, my line my my travel to technical writing is even squirrelier. Um that is I started out as an academic in the humanities. So I spent the first part of my career um writing and teaching engineers to write that was surprisingly enough, a skill that I already had practiced. And when I left the academy, I went into library sciences. Mary said, this is where we met. Really, so much of librarianship is directly translatable to what we do as technical writing. We'll say there are three parts of of librarianship. One is technical services. Another is user services. Right, and then the third is is really what Mary specializes in, which is instructional services. Mm-hmm. Right, so within all of that, we share a couple of core classes, a couple of course real trainings. Uh, the first of which is we are trained to have a user oriented and service oriented mentality. Um, that is what we call professionalization. It's very hard to learn, right? They have to, library school is a lot about knocking off the rough edges because you have to be able to remain cool and calm no matter what is going around you, right? Now you can go into the back room and lose your mind, but <laughs> in front, right, you are collected, right? do not You don't have that option. Your option is always to speak in a nice voice, be welcoming and accept that whatever your challenges are, the person coming to you, their challenges are at that moment your priority. Yeah. So in technical services, we learn three great things. right? We learn taxonomy, well, first classification, taxonomy, and of course, databases. I know every librarian you know can create a database from the command line and has been able to do that at some point in their career. So if you have somebody right out of library school applying for a database job, you should look at them because even if they don't have the credentials you want them to have, they already know how to do it. They've passed that class. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that gives us an introduction really into data and what data looks like and very specifically what metadata looks like. Classification is what kind of buckets we can put metadata into. Mm -hmm. And then taxonomy has a lot to do with how we present that, right? So you know your taxonomy is like your left navigation on your site, also your page navigation, but also your left, primarily your left navigation on the site on the web. There's all of the kinds of context to do taxonomy, and when you put your music on your shelf and you put it in an order that's not just straightly off alphabetical, right? You're using a taxonomy and you're using classification. It's a theoretical construct of how information should exist for a user or for more users. Um, when you're doing your private collection, like you can do it any way you want. like autobiographical. That's amazing. Nobody else can find your stuff. Doesn't mean there's not an order. It's just not discoverable for other people, right? And so, again, that emphasis on service and on the user that was pounded into us in library school yeah, is how we think about how to present that information.
0: Interesting. And now, so... What do the parallels look like between like your sort of like baseline user service, that sort of thing, and applying that for folks like you both working for software companies and providing technical documentation, technical information to a technical audience? Is it different? Does it relate? Is it similar to similar?
1: I will say with user services, uh, one aspect is reference services, which is when people come to you asking a question, we both took a whole semester's worth on like reference questions. The big takeaway was the first question is usually not the actual information that is being looked for. So the first question is just the beginning of the path that may reveal that the user actually would like something different in their information search to be found.
2: Yeah, it's called a reference interview. And so it's a way of um, a strategy of talking to people to help find out what really is the problem that they're trying to solve. So somebody comes to you and says, where's your API documentation? Mm -hmm. And you can say, my API documentation is here. What are you looking for? And then they'll say, well, I need to know how to make the SDK do this thing I want it to do. And you understand at that moment, they don't really want your API documentation. What they want is your command line documentation, your SDK documentation. And then you can parse it through and figure out how you solve that problem to help enable them to do the things they need to do in the most simplest and fastest way. So other things that happen with the user services, their first point is, is the ability to parse what kind of user is asking you a question. If it is a user with a fairly low or new level of information with your product and Mm -hmm. a user who is already an expert in some realm, possibly not in your product and a user who is an expert in your product and the ability to satisfy information needs for each of those audiences. It's one of the things that we we challenge ourselves to do in documentation.
1: And with the knowledge of personas and how users interact with information differently, that really lends a lot of uh, advantages at least with the librarian background, um, to figure out, hey, what do our users really want? What information are we presenting currently within our documentation? Do our users actually find this information interesting or, or not interesting, but
2: valuable?
0: So do you end up then working with like product teams and, and those folks to say, okay, here's, what do your personas look like? What are, what are they looking for? Who, what are you expecting them to, to need to do in the product? And then translating that back into the document. That's
1: one aspect. Um, and also there is a function uh, or a specialization within librarianship uh, with liaison roles. At where So in an academic environment, there may be a librarian who's responsible for the chemistry department or the science department. And so they become somewhat of a subject expert and they provide services and support to those faculty members and to students within that department. And you learn to meet those users with their needs and also to plan projects and how to spin many plates at once. So that's really handy, especially when you, if you're in a role such as a technical writer, sole technical writer, and you're having a bunch of contribution from a bunch of different engineering teams, those skills really lend itself.
0: Cool. What can engineers do then to, to help you out? Like as they're creating new features and doing all this work that they're doing on the products, what creates less friction than for, for getting
2: the the next step out? So that depends a lot on the way the writing is organized. Hmm. Right. Um, And specifically how many writers exist within an organization. If writers are part of the team, if writers are separate from the team, if, the ratio of engineers to writers is staggeringly high. these These things all impact the way the work happens and who needs to do the work and the rate of release. So like anything else, if something you know, if right if there aren't enough writers, if writing is undersupplied, then there will be more bottlenecks because you can't expand the throughput, I think I'm trying to say, without without making the pipe larger. So if a new feature is coming out, um, feature documentation is oftentimes nice to have, you know, when it's released into the world, not just in the release notes. Ideally, the writing team is made aware that the feature is coming out if the writing team is responsible for the documentation, for the feature it needs to be done in a timely way for the writing team to become educated, that is informed about what the feature is and how it works. Otherwise, the uh, engineering team needs to be responsible for it. And you know, if you docs' code methodology that's that's easily done, With enough time for the writing team to test out the documentation, Mm -hmm. give the thing a whirl and validate it, as well as reshape the prose and go through the process of writing. And it's, you know, writing itself is a skill just like writing. It didn't come out of nowhere. We've practiced and honed it for, you know, now at least, you know, two digits worth of time, Mary. And that has to be respected as a process as well and as a skill set.
0: Yeah, so as teams are working at their breakneck pace, like I know when I am digging around in the documentation for uh, a product and the latest features aren't there. You're, you, sh- you sent me this press release. I got an email, but you haven't put the user documentation out. <sighs> it's so frustrating, right? right? It is.
2: So what that speaks to is a gap in content strategy. Yeah. People were aware that they needed to have release notes. They needed to add a feature, therefore they were going to release it and there's going to be release notes. A lot of times that's, you know, that's fairly automated from a change log. Um, and marketing wanted to, you know, put up some fanfare about the new features, but nobody told documentation, right? So that really is a point at which the content strategy for the company isn't working and you should address that gap, like who needs to be brought in to this room and how can we address whatever problems we have that would be might be blocking the publication, the timely publication of information.
0: Do you have any advice for teams like who are maybe struggling? It, Cause it's, I feel like it's probably not just throw more tech writers at it. Like it feels like there's maybe
2: uh, a bit more process and thinking to do. Well, I gotta say a lot of times it is throw more tech writers at it. Okay. Um, the, the way in which technical writing is understaffed in Relationship to the work at most places is dramatic. And having more writers, you know, making that infrastructure, the writing infrastructure larger, uh, solves a lot. Coordinating with technical writing about releases would be the second core part of the strategy. Uh, that there's going to be a release in a month about this thing. And we are going to have it, the code locked at a certain date there will be testing after that date and that's when the writing you know when when the writing review can happen but this means this means very importantly there has to be a little bit of a gap between the time you push what you think is going to be your production release yeah. and its actual release to the public and that's when we can catch up on that now if you want to do writing as you go right, and have editing, you know, as you go, then you certainly need to have enough writers to make that happen because that's a much more labor-intensive model, writing labor-intensive model.
1: And I know, Kimberly, having uh, worked together at the same location, I know in transitioning to Honeycomb where we have things like test and prod and, like, I guess there's version numbers, but, like, nothing that's, like, publicly. It's always, like, we're always iterating it's very interesting because with technical documentation, that takes on a whole another level in how you have to approach the technical documentation. So, as Kimberly said, yeah, you have to coordinate with your teams. You have to coordinate with product. Uh, you have to coordinate with marketing. Ideally, you know of something from one of these three locations, and so it's been an interesting process because um, in addition to having that communication, what's really important, I find, is um, having an established process, mm-hmm. especially as like the sole docs person. Um, one of the first things uh, that I did with my manager's support is to create a new process, write it down, be able to talk to all of the teams that would be potentially involved in creating content to say, hey, this is our process this is what's going on. I know at Honeycomb, we also have an internal volunteer docs guild that we have okay, full of wonderful folks from all sorts of different departments that bring their expertise uh, and their enthusiasm about the docs. Uh, So we meet and we we have discussions and we work on documentation together and different initiatives, uh, which has been really nice. I know not everyone can do a docs guild. Like right now, Honeycomb is like, relatively small. Uh, We're growing significantly in this year and hopefully the coming years. But it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we'll see how the structure works for now. But if you are a smaller organization, there's ways of being able to formalize and create a streamlined structure. So then it becomes normalized in terms of, oh yes, documentation. It's not a big, scary thing of submitting this content because I know the docs writer is going to go in and look at what I wrote. It's they'd rather have the content than nothing at all. They'll help me polish it. They'll help me figure out where the information needs to go. It's about creating that trust and that community around the documentation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Like I figure, a larger organization, like a larger engineering team, is going to have guilds around certain components or languages or or things like that. Like it feels kind of natural to have. You know, if you're interested in this, if you've been frustrated by it in the past, like maybe I have on both ends, because like full disclosure, before either of you joined us at Chef, our docs were a nightmare and I had my dirty fingers in there for a while and it was not my most favorite thing to do either.
1: And that was it with at least like five years. Uh, I'll be generous and be like, yes, it was five years worth, you know, like at least five years of content content. Yes, and version changes and new features that may or may not have been documented. I know Kimberly. By the time Kimberly got done with it, it was good to go. But like, it was
0: amazing. It was. (laughs) it was It was. It was just. It was an absolute revelation for us. I think because it had been so catch as catch can, and written by the field team, and written by the consultants, and written by whoever else looked at the thing and said, this isn't actually how this works and we should fix this documentation so we can stop answering questions.
1: Yeah, and what I appreciate with the docs as code philosophy is that not only are you getting contributions from engineering, but also those who are out in the field. I really encourage that because my background was before Chef, I was a trainer for a open source library software. So I would find things in the field where I would go, wait, that wasn't there. And then the developers would be like, oh, yeah, it it was there. We just didn't write about it. I'm like, okay, you know, like, at least I know this for next time. So it doesn't surprise me. But like, I need to write it down for the community. So
0: yeah, definitely. So that's, uh, that's a question too, like, for the companies that you've worked for, and especially with Honeycomb now, like there's a lot of user activity, the Honeycomb Slack is pretty busy. Uh, do you have a a way that you take input back in from customers and users as well as, uh, the content that comes through the regular development pipeline?
1: Oh, for sure. Well, I, at least for Honeycomb, those who have been on the Honeycomb doc site recently may have noticed a little feedback form that has started to appear at the bottom of all of the pages with the exception of the homepage. Nice. Um, that is a recent addition that we're really excited about. And we're also, I know at Chef, the docs repository is public. So there could be community contributions. Honeycomb, it's still a private docs repo. um, But we do have a, oh, I need to update. We have a docs email now for feedback. But we also have the feedback form. Like, Like the big thing is the feedback form that everyone in Docs Guild sees anyway. And we also have suggestions and fixes and things pointed out to us. Uh, within our uh, honeycomb pollinator Slack, which is our community group Slack. So that's been really helpful. So we we've been getting information or getting information from a whole bunch of folks, and we try to respond as fast as possible. I know having someone that's responsible just for docs was a big deal, because then it could be like, oh, yes, this, this one little fix will actually get fixed. But my thing is always the generosity of our users that I appreciate. Um, Whether it's internally or external, uh, our users are really passionate about documentation. And that's been really nice to experience at Honeycomb.
0: All right. To wrap up, do you have a favorite myth you like to bust about the work that you do? Are there things that you find folks really have a misconception about or have the wrong idea about that just want to set the record straight right here?
1: Well, I was going to say at the first part of your question, I was like, oh, yeah, Miss for ex-librarians. Yeah, I don't have a favorite book or book recommendation, but like ask me maybe in three months when I've read a book, you know, like um, that that was a question that I or something that I experienced when we had an internal uh, AMA at Honeycomb. Everyone's like, what's your what's this? What's that? Books, books, books. And I was just like. Uh, like it's been a while. We'll have
0: to have a book chat on a different episode, we'll do more prep for that. Yeah, yeah definitely. I said,
1: well, I was, it was one of those things where I was like, oh man, like I used to have opinions about that, but like they were like, what's your hot, spicy hot take? I was like, I don't know. <laughs> There's like a children's illustrator that I think is cool, but I don't think he's that cool, you know, like I, <laughs> which is like controversy among the children's librarians that
0: I know. So, I just stay out of like they have their own set and Twitter and like things get real weird over there. Library Twitter, do beware, like
1: please be careful when wading through. Library Twitter is a very formative space and informative space, uh, but there is there are flame wars. Ooh, yeah. I, it's
0: spectator only for me. Like yeah. You are a wise person.
2: Yes. Kimberly, anything uh, on your side? So um I'm not gonna give a hot take, but the book I would recommend is Bhati's recent book, uh, the, the author, several authors, but the, the first author is Bhati B-H-A-T-T-I, and it is documentation for developers. Oh, excellent. Okay. We'll put a link to that in the show notes.
0: So for, for developers that are out there, if they need to maybe have some language to, to justify doing a little bit of additional work on documentation to their product teams or, or anything
2: there, do you have any recommendations for them as our parting thoughts today? It always seems incredibly strange to me that you would need to justify documentation, right? I mean, if nobody has it written down, right, if it doesn't exist somewhere, the feature may as well not exist, right? You've rendered it invisible. For the product team,
1: docs can be the difference between people using your product, your influence of your product expanding. They, they can really be a differentiating factor within the market.
0: I feel that way too. Absolutely. And like I said before, like when you guys came on board at, at chef and helped us out there, like it helped all of us in the field to, to get things through to the users so much better and give them a place where and we couldn't be available 24 seven for questions and concerns that they actually had a reliable place to turn for answering your questions.
2: And also finally, thank you so much for all your kind words about my work at chef. I you know, always see the warts instead of...
0: I know, right? Like, it's one of those crazy things, like, especially for for startups, I think, like, the the early versions of, of anything are almost an archaeological project. They're almost like a baby scrapbook. Like, you're flipping the pages and seeing how things develop, and then all of a sudden, your product is walking and teething, and you haven't really caught up with what's going on with the
2: documentation. That is the best analogy. Good, we learned something today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, and don't be surprised if your
1: technical writers are like, oh, yes, yes, but it could be better because that is usually my, my default response as well when it comes to any technical writing that I've done. I'm like, ah, yeah, thank you very much, but it could be better. Like, like, I appreciate that you enjoy it, that you have found use. I love highlighting other people's work, though. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a podcast uh, that recently had a guest that was like, oh, yeah, Honeycomb's conceptual documentation is really good. And I was like, that wasn't me, but I'll be sure to let to know the main contributors to that. That, you know, they got a shout out. Yeah, excellent,
0: fantastic. All right, well, ladies. Thank you for joining us. This has been super interesting. I will make sure that we have all the amazing resources in the show notes for folks because the the Doxis model and the Bati book, like those sound absolutely crucial uh, references for for folks who are interested in, in these things. And I want to thank you for, for joining us today. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Uh, for everyone else out there, we will wish you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageTothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at Limit using the number two. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.